One sentence of the Mashiach Suda. One sentence of the Mashiach Suda. Yesterday, was it yesterday? Two days ago. Matzah Shabbos, or the end of Shabbos and the, a little bit after Shabbos, was Achron Shal Pesach. We had a Mashiach Suda here at Chabad of the Five Towns. Uh, it, was a, it was a beautiful gathering. Baruch Hashem, had a wonderful turnout. And uh, what do you want? You want, just, you want me to give them the 10 second version yeah. for those who weren't here? spoke about a lot of things, but I think one of them was that Achron Shal Pesach is the commemoration of the splitting of the, the sea, Kriyas Yamsuf, which was on Shvi Shal Pesach, Achron Shal Pesach, and Shvi Shal Pesach, one Yom. So there's a, there's a Sicha, the Rebbe Sicha, which I conveyed the gist of about why Nachshin ben Aminada was the only one to jump into the sea. He was the only one with that idea. But the way that Eb explains it, based on the Medrash, is actually, you wonder why he even did it. Because um, before Matan Taito, the Jewish people were not yet halachically Jewish. And uh, a non-Jew is not allowed to take their own life. That's one of the seven Noahide laws. And yet... Um, Throwing yourself into the sea would certainly be endangering your life. Now, if you're Jewish, you also have a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, which is to sanctify God's name even at the risk of your life or even giving up your life. But that mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem does not exist for non-Jews. So that was the deliberation that was going on at the time of the, the, of the splitting of the sea. People were like, the sea hadn't split yet. They had no idea it would split. So they were saying, are we allowed to endanger our lives halachically? And so then now the question becomes, why, did it, why didn't Nachshin wait and listen to the conclusion of the scholarly debate and found, find out if he was even allowed to do what he did? And the Rebbe's answer was, if you're starting to ask already, am I allowed to sacrifice myself? Am I allowed to endanger myself? Am I allowed to enter into Mesidus Nefesh? Then you're already... You're already missing the point. Nachshin didn't, didn't have to wait for the conclusion to, the, to this debate because he didn't even start the debate. His whole focus was he knew one thing. They came, came out of Mitzrayim to get to Har Sinai, and that's where I'm going. Is there a yam in between? Okay, so maybe Hashem will figure it out. But that's not my business. My business is to go toward the goal. So in our day, our goal is to get to the finish line, to perfect the world. And are there sacrifices that may, may need to be made in between? Yeah, maybe there are, maybe they're not, but that's not really our focus. It's not what we're considering. I mentioned, I mean, now you said to do it in one sentence. I can't hold back, but I mentioned there was a group of, uh, you, you had a, uh, a, a Zoom call with Mrs. Silverstein from Chernigov, the Shlucha, and a young American girl who went on Shlichas to Ukraine, which is crazy enough and then ends up becoming a war refugee, which is even more unthinkable. And her whole demeanor is basically like, yeah, okay, I'm calm, I'm at peace, I'm okay. And people are like marveling, how can somebody have such a sense of inner peace in such a, in such a, in such a situation? And I was trying to explain the idea that when you're on a shlichus, which we're all shluchim, we're all on a mission, then you don't really... You, what, what's your mind focused on? Your mind is focused on your goal. Your mind is focused on the completion of the task, not on the hardships that may be entailed in completing the task. So if we think about the hardships of Gullus, it's, you know, all the different tests and trials and tribulations, it can become, you know what it can become. It just, it's, it's not a good path to go down to. But if we focus on the goal, if we focus on the fact we're here to perfect the universe and that whatever comes up in between in the interim trying to com complete our task, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it, just like Nachshin. He wasn't really thinking about, was well, this going to be Mesidus Nefesh? Is it not Mesidus Nefesh? That wasn't his discussion. His discussion was, which direction are we heading? And that's it. And you just go in the direction you're heading. Anyways, that was the five-minute version, not the one-sentence version. And then obviously there was much more than that because it was like a two-hour Mashiach uh, Suda. But like they say, you had to have been there. So next, next, year. next year, but next year in Jerusalem. Yeah, definitely. So everyone will definitely be there. 
Okay. So, should we do Pedig Yud Dalit? Or, or? Chapter 14. No, but should we do it? What's the other option? Or, oh, or what's the other? <laughs> you can tell jokes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the guy goes to the doctor. He says, "Doctor, hurts when I go like that." The doctor says, "Don't go like that." <laughs> so, that, to answer your question seriously, yeah, what if the hardships are so distracting that I can't even focus on my goal? The answer to the question is the question itself, which is, focus on the goal, and you'll be able to deal with the hardships. But in order to focus on the goal, Mashiach is such an abstraction for many of us. When we say, Ani mamin Amunah is something that by definition, faith means something, that it's abstract. You don't have a, you believe in it because you haven't seen it. That's why we have to not just believe in Mashiach, but we have to learn about Mashiach. We have to learn from Torah sources that describe what it means what the world will be like, not just the trees will be growing cra- uh, candy and all the, the you know, childish ways of describing it, which are also true, but childish. So that the, the goal of Mashiach becomes real in our minds. And it's not just, uh, I don't want to minimize it by saying, it's, I don't want to minimize <laughs> faith by saying it's not just one of the 13 principles of faith, but it's also incredibly... Uh, psychologically and emotionally healing because if you do have a very clear vision of what Mashiach means it changes everything it changes everything the, the Rebbe wrote in a letter that since he was a small child he doesn't say the age but he says before I even started going to Cheder so a child of two or three years old he said I was already beginning to envision what the redemption would look like so as a little child, as a toddler, he was already picturing the redemption. I think that's an instruction for all of us. We have to have visions. We have to have images. What does redemption mean? Um, it's a very important exercise to have, to have those images and to have those thoughts. But that they, they shouldn't just be fantasies. They should be based on Torah sources, which means we have to study. You have to study, there's, there's plenty of material in the, uh, in the literature, going back all the way to, you know, Chumash and uh, Tanakh and uh, Gemara and Madrash and Rishonim and Achreinim, speaking all about Mashiach. So, maybe we'll start a, we should start a shir just on uh, concepts of Mashiach. Oh, yeah. We could do that. Yeah. Okay, we're starting a new shir. Yinyani Mashiach. Okay, so should we do Perig Dalad? Okay. All right, Perig Dalad, chapter 14. So 12, 13, 14, maybe even 15, sort of all go together because they're all talking about the Bainini. If you remember in chapter 10, we spoke about the Tzaddik. In chapter 11, we spoke about the Rasha. And then in chapter 12, we introduced the Bainini. So, um, we're continuing now in chapter 14 to speak about the Bainini. I'm just going to jump in. The, I'm going to translate Midas HaBainini as the level of the Bainini. is a level that anyone can acquire, and everybody should strive to attain it. How are we going to make such a statement that the level of the Bainini is attainable by everyone? We just said that a Bainini has 100% impeccable, perfect <coughs> thought, speech, and action. How are, we going to, how are we going to assert that everyone can attain that level? Because anybody can be a Bainini at any time. Because after all, remember, a Bainini does not need to despise 
Ra. Ra means evil, but we could call it selfishness or anything that's not expressly for the service of Hashem. He's, he's not turned off by it. If you told me I had to be turned off by it, well, that's very difficult. I'm not that in control of my feelings. I can't get myself to like what I don't like or dislike what I do like, at least not at will. I can't just will myself to change my desires and my attractions. But I can control my behaviors. So that's the, that's the easy part of being a Bainini is that the Bainini is not required to change his feelings. He says, your preferences, your desires, that's something that is a matter of the heart. It's not really, it's not really up to you. Also, not every situation, not every time and place is the same. Meaning these things fluctuate. You know, sometimes my feelings are more aligned with what Hashem wants for me, sometimes less. And that's not really something I can control. I can control the expression of it, whether I allow it to come out as a behavior. But the fact that I have these feelings, the heart wants what it wants. Rather, what does a Benini do? He turns away from evil and he does good. And what do we mean? In actual deed. With action, with speech, and with willful conscious thought. As we've defined so many times before, thought here <coughs> means the activity of consciously choosing a thought. Not images that pop up in your head. Those are just impulses and those we know we can't control. But we're talking about willful thought where you choose a thought and run with it as an activity. That we do have control over just like we have control over our action and our speech. And that's what Abenini controls perfectly. So after all, what is Abenini really doing? He's just exerting control over that which all of us have control. The only difference is he does it consistently. Yeah, that's the point. That's the whole premise. That's the whole premise. Right. There, there was a, a chassid who a lot of people used to say was a bainini. It was a mashpia in the yeshiva, and uh, he'd come out of Russia, and he ran underground um, schools. He was just, just a guy who used to just daven all day and uh, didn't really, yeah, he was he just davened all day, basically. And people used to say it was a Bainini. Anyways, I confirmed, I actually heard the story as a rumor, but then I confirmed it with the person it happened to. He was uh, visiting America, and actually this story happened in Canada when he was coming to New York to visit, but he stopped in Montreal, and he was staying with his uh, relatives, and so his little uh, nephew um, was six or seven years old. And there were two brothers, two brothers uh, who were roommates, little kids. And when their great uncle, this venerable mashpia, this, uh, the person that people murmured about and said he was a bainini, uh, when he would come over to visit, so one of them would sleep on the couch and the other one would stay in the room and be roommates with their with their father, with their uncle. So, the I mean, for anyone it matters. The, the I guess the names are public record at this point. Anyways, the 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 great uncle is uh, Nissan Emanov from Brunois, and the two boys were uh, Yasi and Moshe Demberg. Florida. So I heard this from Yossi. So anyways, he says that he, tur- he didn't know any better. And he turns to his uncle and he says, Fat bisto Abedini, are you a, a Abedini? <laughs> Which is not really, uh, I don't know if you know Hasidic cultural norms. It's not a polite thing to say. So it's a little bit, a little bit bold. So he didn't say yes, he didn't say no. He said, um, 
you could be a Bainini. Can't sign a Bainini. So he says, yeah. He says, yeah. He said, gain them a, a, a tilim. Go take a, a safer tilim. So he took a safer tilim. And he says, oh, tilim. So he starts reading tilim. And he's doing this for four or five minutes. And at the end of the four or five minutes, the uncle says to him, says, Zogmir, tell me. Um, the past four or five minutes, were you doing anything you're not supposed to be doing? He's like, no, I'm just standing here. He says, were you saying anything you're not supposed to be saying? He says, no, I'm saying tilim. Tilim's good. He says, were you thinking anything you're not supposed to be thinking? He says, no, I'm just thinking, ah, oh, I wonder why I'm standing here saying tilim. That, that was it. <laughs> so the, the uncle says, he says, perfect. Now just continue that for the rest of your life. So simple. Now, this is somebody that people said he was a bainini. Whether he was not he wasn't, none of my business. The point is, what did he respond to the child when the child asks, are you a bainini? He says, you could be a bainini. And what was the illustration? Go have four or five minutes of a, of a taste of what being a bainini is like. At least one level of a bainini. Obviously, there are levels of, of being a bainini. And, and, and we're not... We're not suggesting that all Bainanim have one inner profile where they have the same degree of struggle, the same degree of self-control or purification. Obviously, there's a whole range within Bainanim. But <clears throat> what is universal about all Bainanim is that their, their behaviors are perfect, and then inwardly there's some degree of struggle. How much struggle? Obviously, it would vary from one Bainanim to another. But there's some degree of struggle because their insides are not in perfect alignment with their, with their outsides. So the point is that this uncle tells this, <clears throat> this child, you want to know what a bainini is? You're speaking about it like it's such a, like an exotic thing. Like uh, this, ooh, this bainini, like it's such a foreign idea. For four or five minutes, you had the experience of being a bainini. And the only difference between four or five bainini minutes and being someone who's in the category of Bainini is just extending those four or five minutes for the rest of your life. Just don't stop. Now, easier said than done. Just don't stop, right? Obviously, it takes a, an incredible amount of commitment and self-control to not stop. And that's what the book is about, or at least a large part of the book is about how to give ourselves the support we need to be able to maintain that control. But as far as the actual um, mechanics of being a Bainini, it shouldn't be so, uh, it shouldn't seem so far removed from us. It, it's, it, we're, we're, maybe I'd say, we're demystifying the entire idea. The, the mechanics of it are, are rather simple. It's called controlling your behaviors, which we all know how to do, we've all done for some amount of time. And the difference is not qualitative, it's quantitative. It's not qualitatively different, impulse control. It's quantitatively different in as much as it's just more and more and more and more of it without stopping. Okay? <clears throat> okay. So he continues to explain more about why we're focusing on behavior. Because when it comes to behaviors... A person has free choice, and he has the ability to control it, and that, that was given to everyone, l'chol adam, it says, to everyone. Everyone was given the ability to control their behaviors. L'aseis, to do, l'adaber, to speak, v'lachshef, to think, g'amashu negativus libei, v'havcha mamash. Not only can you not do what you want to do, but you can even do what you don't want to do. That's very important. You can force yourself. This bum came up to me on the street, says, I haven't eaten in three days. I said, so force yourself. <laughs> That's an old Henny Youngman one-liner from the Borscht Belt. Today it's... <laughs> Nobody... You don't say a bum came up to me. I, I was thinking to myself, should I edit the joke? And I was like, no, it makes it worse. You just got to go full force with the joke, the way that it used to be told. That's the old Borscht Belt joke. So force yourself. <laughs> Anyways, 
just an old Henny Youngman joke. Don't, don't get upset. Don't get upset. Okay. Anyways, um, the, the point is, he says, force yourself. So force yourself. So you don't want to do it. You don't feel like it. Just force yourself. What's the big deal? No one's telling you to, to love what you don't love. No one's telling you to hate what you don't hate. They're just telling you sometimes you're going to have to do something you hate and not do something that you love. Okay, I, I do that already. You know, I do that already. Just Yeah, okay, so just do it more. Do it, do it consistently. <laughs> now he describes it. Even at the point in time when the heart is actually lusting. Mesava is a taivagashmis. It's having a craving for some physical pleasure. Whether that pleasure is a permissible pleasure or it is forbidden according to Torah. Even at the time when the heart is experiencing this feeling of longing, which we can't control, we cannot control that we have the feeling, you could completely avert your attention from it. <clears throat> Meaning, it's running in the background, <coughs> but you could <coughs> completely avert your attention from it. Not give it any focus. And he says, here's how you do it. You say a little monologue. Ba'amre lalibay means you speak to your heart. Here's the Bainini's internal monologue. I don't want to be a Rasha for even a minute. You know why I don't want to be separate from Hashem for even one minute? Well, actually... I gave away the answer. You know why I don't want to be a, a, a wicked person for even one minute? Because I don't want to be separated from Hashem for even one minute. Like it says, your sins separate you from God. <clears throat> yeah. I think it's very important <clears throat> here to underline the dis... What do you call it? The disincentive? Is that the word? Disincentive? The opposite of an incentive? disincentive the disincentive for doing whatever you feel like doing right now is not that you're afraid of being punished it's not that you think about Gehenna we're not saying those things aren't real I think a lot of very immature black and white thinkers get uptight and think that when we say that that's not our motivation that we're chas v'shalom negating basic fundamental beliefs in Judaism. Oh, you're saying that these aren't concerns. They're not real. I didn't say it's not real. I said that's not what motivates people. Then you could ask a deeper philosophical question. If Gehenna is not such a motivation, then why does it exist? Okay, that's another discussion. <laughs> but that's not the motivation. I didn't say it doesn't exist. I'm not here. <laughs> I just said the fact that it does exist is not the motivation. It's not what we use <clears throat> to rein in our behaviors. You know, <laughs> I'll make a parallel. I have a friend who for a long time was not, I don't think he was observant at all. Like, I don't think he kept anything. Uh, he was raised in an observant home, but then completely went away and then slowly came back. And... Uh, at any rate, so at one point he was not Shabbos observant at all. Now, now he is somewhat, and uh, maybe completely Shabbos observant. That, that's not the point. The point is that somebody said to him, aren't you worried about Parnosa? Aren't you worried about your livelihood? He says, what, what does that question mean? He says, well, if you don't keep Shabbos, Hashem could withhold your livelihood. So this friend of mine laughs and he says, so essentially you're arguing that money is more important than Shabbos. Because you didn't tell me I should keep Shabbos because of Shabbos. You said I should keep Shabbos because I don't want Hashem to withhold my parnasa. That I want to make sure I get my money, so I got to keep Shabbos. So you're telling me that money is more important than Shabbos. Um, 
the question is, what's the motivation? Are you going to force yourself to do what you don't particularly feel like doing, but you know that Hashem wants you to do because of Gan Eden and Gehenna? Then I guess Gan Eden and Gehenna are what's important, not Hashem. I mean, logically, I'm forced to conclude that Gan Eden and Gehenna are more important to me than Hashem. And in fact, logically, that would, it would stand to reason if there, were, if there were a way that conceivably I could cut out Hashem and get the Gan Eden and avoid the Gehenna, I would do that too. Because those are the motivators and those are, those, those are what I care about. The Alter Rebbe says here <clears throat> that when you need to motivate yourself, you motivate, you, mo- you motivate yourself by thinking about being separate from God. That being separate from God is the ultimate punishment. Natural consequence. Not the punishment that uh, the purifications of Gehenna. Even though those are real things. And he spoke about it in, in Pedichas. He spoke about Gehenna in chapter 8. But he doesn't bring that back over here when he's motivating us. It's not what he mentions over here. Yeah? I think that's only a motivator if a person has a taste of being connected to God. So the question is, well, I think that's only a motivator if someone's already experienced it and tasted it. That's a, that's a thought. So I'm going to counter, and I'm going to say it's not explicit here, but it's implicit in the entire worldview of Tanya, and it's explicit in other places, that the very nature of the Jew is to desire closeness with Hashem. It's almost on an instinctive level, and it's native, at least to the nefesh alakis, to the godly soul, to desire that connection and to be terrified of disconnection. So it's not something that has to be learned. It's something that's already there. And in quiet moments can be revealed. And maybe that's why he phrases it as an, as an internal monologue, because it's a, it's a meditation. It's like a quiet step aside for a second and go return to yourself, so to speak. Um, listen to the still small voice. Um, it, it, it's, it's axiomatic that we want to be close to God. We want to do the right thing. Um, the Rebbe said so many hundreds of times, perhaps. I think definitely it's safe to say hundreds of times. Um, there's a law in the Rambam, Mehilchus Gerushin, the laws of divorce, about a man who is obligated to give a divorce halachically and he's refusing. So the, the Rambam says you force him until he does what he's supposed to do. Now, how can you say then that he gave the get willingly if you forced him? So the Rambam says because you're not forcing him, he wants to do the right thing. And if Halacha says he needs to give a divorce in this case, then he, that's what he really wants to do deep down. You're not forcing him. Yitzray Ansai. His Yitzahara is forcing him to misbehave right now. So what's called being compelled? There's no such thing as compelling a Jew to do the right thing. That's like I'm going to compel a bird to fly south for the winter. That's what they instinctively do. That's what they want to do. And if the bird's not doing that, there's something compelling them not to do it. That's the compulsion. So, the Alter Rebbe tells us to go think about separation from God because he believes that this is something that is meaningful to every Jew. It is meaningful to us. Now, obviously... The more we think about it, the more meaningful it'll be to us. But uh, this is this is basic to who we are. We do care about these things. 
and it's selling ourselves short to focus on lower level motivations. It's like, you know, telling somebody, well, don't be mean to your wife. She might leave you. Well, and what if she won't? What if she'll just be sad and live with it? Would you still be mean to her? I think we have to give people credit <laughs> that even if there are no external consequences, that we care enough about our relationship with Hashem that we wouldn't want to damage the relationship. And that's what he's saying here. I can get myself to behave just by reminding myself that I wouldn't want to damage the relationship. And that, that itself is meaningful to me without the threat or promise of external reward or punishment or vice versa, punishment or reward. Threat of, re threat of punishment or promise of reward. Okay. So he says, I don't want to be separate from Hashem. But let's continue the internal monologue. Rather, I want to cleave, I want to be attached to Hashem with my nefesh ruch and neshama, all the levels of my soul. Okay, great, beautiful idea. How do you connect all the levels of your soul to Hashem? By connecting the three garments of the soul to, or by connecting my soul to the three garments, Hashem's three garments, so the three garments that belong to Hashem, the three garments that were given by Hashem, like we spoke about in Perigdala, chapter 4, about the, the three garments are thought, speech, and action, and of the godly soul, those are the garments of Torah study and mitzvah performance that were given by Hashem, and that they lift us up into oneness with Hashem. So, you want to be close to Hashem? That's a beautiful idea. A guy is saying, oh, I love my wife. I love my wife. Okay, that's a beautiful sentiment. How is that going to express itself? No, 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 I just love her. Well, you know, she said, go to the store. No, 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 I want to do something really big for my wife. I, no, but she's standing there in the kitchen waiting for the, the heavy cream, and she said, go to the store. No, but I just want to think about how... Okay, no, go to the store, and then... And then you know, then maybe you'll figure out something else you could do. That's you know, you actually, I'm, as I'm saying this, I remember one time in yeshiva. <laughs> uh, there's this little excitable kid. I mean, he wasn't a kid. He was 19, 20 years old. But he starts. He, I don't remember. I don't remember what got him excited. But he comes running into the, the eating area, the dining room, and he's like, guys. Let's bring Mashiach. Let's really do it. Let's bring Mashiach. So there was another guy who was a little bit older and a little bit more settled, and he's like, that's a great idea. Let's start keeping Seder. Keeping Seder means come to class on time, which is like the bane of every Yeshiva Bacha's existence, coming to class on time. He says, let's start keeping Seder and be nice to each other. You know, the Bacham should treat each other nicely. So that's two pretty good things. Shmira Sassadotim and Avas Yisrael. You know, keeping the, the schedule of the Yeshiva and, and being nice to uh, your fellow students. So this little excitable guy looks at him for a second. He's like, no, I mean, really bring Mashiach. <laughs> really, really bring Mashiach. Okay. <laughs> so you want to be attached to Hashem. Beautiful. All right. How, how does that translate? What does that look like in actual fact? It means behaviors. That's what it means. It means choosing thought, speech, and action that connect you to Hashem. So this is all part of the internal monologue. Okay, I'm feeling a desire to do something that I want to do or feels important to me or feels necessary or whatever it is. That I'm very convinced that this is the next thing that I really, really want to do. Hold on a second. I'm thinking... Hashem doesn't like it. No, it's not. No, in Shulchan Aruch it says don't do that. So Hashem doesn't want that. What can I do? There's what I want to do. There's what Hashem wants me to do. What should I do? What should I do? So I stop. And I meditate. And I think to myself, oh, 
they're going to boil me. If I, no, that's not what I think. I think to myself, hold on a second. I don't want to be separate from Hashem. Why would I be separate from Hashem? I want to be one with Hashem. Okay, great. I want to be one with Hashem. Beautiful. One with Hashem. No, no, no. One with Hashem means in your next behavioral choice, choose something that is aligned with Hashem's will. That's what it means. So this is all part of the, the meditation here. Shehem. And what are the levushim? <clears throat> he spells it out. Action, speech, and thought of Hashem's Torah and His mitzvahs. I'm still talking to myself. This is sort of an answer to your question, by the way. He says here, and these are a reflection of the innate love of Hashem that's hidden in my heart. Misuteris means hidden. He says you have an innate love of Hashem hidden in your heart already. You don't have to go out and get it. You already have it. In fact, all Jews have this. All Jews are referred to as the lovers of Hashem's name. You know what? I should have answered your question before and said, wait three lines. You see that the Altebbe wrote Tanya for every individual. That every question that anyone will have. Sometimes you have to wait a few chapters. Sometimes you have to wait ten chapters. But... Right here, you just had to wait a few lines. This is, this is the answer to your question, right here. <laughs> Remember the question? Well, maybe I, don't, maybe I don't value closeness with Hashem. Maybe I have to be more refined in order to even value that as a motivator. He says here, no, all Jews mot- uh, are motivated by that. All Jews value that. He says, <laughs> He says, look, historically we know, and later in Tanya he'll speak about it more at length, that even people who were completely irreligious gave up their lives to hold on to their Jewish identity. People who were tortured and murdered for being Jews. And they were not particularly religious in their lifetimes. And they held on to their Jewish identity. So where does that come from? That doesn't come from, from religious observance because they, re- they weren't observant. You can tell me in the, that a, the religious zealot gave up his life for his God. Okay, every religion has that. Every religion has that. But what about someone who was not the religious zealot? Far from it, they were irreligious and they gave up their life for God. I always think of Daniel Pearl. Daniel Pearl, yeah. He was intermarried and did not identify at all religiously. And yeah, in his, in his last words, he said that I'm a Jew. Yeah, that's right. Where does that come from? Doesn't, doesn't come from somebody who uh, davened Shemineser three times today. That's not where it comes from. Doesn't come from somebody who boiled the sugar before Pesach. It's not where it's coming from. It's coming from something embedded that can't be expunged from the Jewish soul. It's just uh, innate to who the Jew is. So, in my internal monologue, I say, even the people who are completely irreligious have this desire, and it doesn't come out, obviously, regularly, because they're not religious, but at, at a time where push comes to shove, and they come to a test where it's very black and white what the stakes are, the stakes are give up your life and retain your Jewishness, or save your life by giving up your Jewishness, the Jew, even the irreligious Jew, cannot give up their Jewishness. So, if that's true, I'm no worse than that. When do you, you tell me that? I, I, I'm, I have less of that in me than every other Jew? No, no, I also have that. Now he explains, well, now... Tell me, why does the irreligious Jew um, only have that clarity at a moment of a real black and white life and death test? He says, because he has a ruach shtos, a spirit of folly. He thinks that doing this sin, whatever, whatever sin it is at this moment, it's not going to separate me. And that's how he, he, he rationalizes doing it. In other words, no Jew will ever sin if he felt that it would really separate him from God. What, so then how did Jews sin? 
They, they convince themselves it's not separating me from God. Either you convince yourself it's not really a sin, or you convince yourself there is no God. Whatever you have to lie to yourself, you know, to rationalize. I've told you guys this before. Rationalize is rational lies. So it's very smart sounding, very logical, and it's all lies. So you lie to yourself to comfort yourself. Whatever you have to tell yourself, you tell yourself, you know, God forbid that the, the, the Torah is not really binding or it never was binding or it's not real or it's man-made or you tell, God forbid you tell yourself there is no God. Whatever you have to tell yourself to convince yourself that by doing this next action, it's not going to separate me from God. So those are the, the lies that a Jew has to tell himself or herself to be comfortable sinning. But if, you, if a Jew were in a situation where... He, he or she were not able to lie and had to admit the truth that, no, this stuff really is real, and by, by, by choosing something God doesn't want from me, I'm separating myself from God, so no Jew would be able to do that. So the difference is, <laughs> talking about the Kal Shabbat the irreligious Jew, is that they have themselves fooled that what they're doing is not separating themselves from God. At the moment of a test where... You know, the, the Grand Inquisitor is standing over you and saying, renounce the God of Israel, then it's hard to fool yourself anymore, and then it becomes abundantly clear what's at stake. But the point is, <clears throat> when the, even the irreligious Jew has clarity and knows exactly what's at stake, um, the irreligious Jew will not choose separation from God. Why? Because that's just something that's embedded in the Jewish soul. So too, I'm also Jewish. <clears throat> I can also invoke that power. And when I need motivation, I can just remind myself that uh, I don't want to be separate from God. He continues here describing this. When this irreligious Jew is being irreligious most of his life, what has he, do what has he done that allows him to do that? It's very interesting, the word here. He's forgotten the love for Hashem that's hidden in his heart. It's a couple words there I just love. First of all, forgotten. Not he never learned it. He didn't have to learn it. It's part of the factory default settings. He forgot about it. It was always there, but he forgot about it. Also, hemisuteris, that it's hidden. It's latent. It's, it's embedded in his psyche. But he forgot about it. He, he's out, he, he fell out of touch from it. Okay, but here, continuing the monologue. Aval ani, but me... I don't want to be such a fool as to deny the truth. I think it's so funny. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's funny. Maybe it's funny that I think it's funny. But that <laughs> when he's giving himself like that tough talk, like that tough coach, you know, the coach, you know, is like screaming at the players. That's how I imagine. It's a little bit like a tough self-talk. When you're screaming at yourself, he's saying, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to sin. Why not? Because I don't want to be separate from Hashem. Uh, well, who says you care about being separate from Hashem? Every Jew cares about <clears throat> being separate from Hashem, even, even the irreligious Jew. <laughs> Except that he fools himself, and he rationalizes that it's not going to be, it's not going to damage him. I don't want to be such a fool. I don't know, so to me, I think there's something so Jewish about that, that the ultimate insult, <laughs> don't be a fool. Like, like, it's not like, oh, if you do this, you won't be from. No, it's like, if you do this, you're going to be a fool. <laughs> you're going to be a shaita. Don't be an idiot. Don't be, a, I don't know, to me that's funny. It's like very Jewish. Like, don't be an idiot. Like, if you let yourself rationalize doing something Hashem doesn't want you to do, you know what that makes you? It makes you a dummy. Don't be a dummy. I, I, I just think that's funny. Okay, I think it's funny that it's such a true insight into Jewish psychology, like the ultimate thing. Like, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the idiot. Why would, I, why would I let myself talk myself into something that's stupid? Okay, so that's the end of, <coughs> that's the end of the monologue. The end of the monologue. Anyways, so this monologue, he says, is useful, we have to know what a tool does in order to evaluate its effectiveness. This monologue is useful in curbing behavioral expressions of desires. It is not useful in 
I'm going to say the setup again. You're going to finish it for me. Okay? This is like magic to Kareem. All right? This tool is useful in curbing the behavioral, the tool meaning the monologue. The monologue is a tool which is useful in curbing the behavioral expressions of desires. It is not useful in thought is a behavior. So it is useful in... in and motivating for positive... It is useful in mo motivating positive behavior. The, the first impulse of thought. Yeah, but uh, let's... Can I use a different word for that? Because the first impulse of thought... What we can't control. Go ahead, keep saying. What's the big distinction we're making here? Behaviors and... Desire. Okay. And you're calling it initial. It may not just be initial. It may be constant. Correct. So let me say it again. This tool, this monologue, is extremely effective in helping us to curb the behavioral <clears throat> expression of desires. And not the desire. But not the desire. And if you try to use a tool for a job it was not intended for, obviously it's going to fail. Okay, they don't do that in your No, they don't. Give permission for the desire. Meaning, I'm not going to encourage you to go get excited about things that are forbidden, but you're, but you're human. And... Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> the thing is, you're, you're talking about things that a person, you could protect them from being exposed to, which you can't anyway, because, but, but there's plenty of things. <clears throat> How do you protect someone from ever being exposed to Bittal Torah? There's no way to protect someone from being exposed to the idea of zoning out and wasting time instead of learning Torah. Okay, so that's, to say that our whole game plan is just to deny them their first taste of forbidden fruit. And as long as they've never had the experience of the thing that Toyota forbids, they'll never develop a desire for it. First of all, good luck trying to shelter your kids that much. But second of all, I'm just giving it as an example, Bittal Toyota. Bittal Toyota is not something that somebody had to go out and learn how to do. That's like a default thing that everyone catches themselves doing and you have to learn how to not do it. So, yeah, that's not much of a game plan to say that we're just going to prevent you from having your first experience of doing something forbidden. What we're saying here, I just want to get to a stopping point, <clears throat> is <clears throat> that it is natural to desire things that Hashem does not want you to do. It is natural. It's inevitable. And we're not going to focus on that. What we're going to focus on are the behavioral expressions. And this monologue is a tool to head off the behavioral expression of the desire. Let's just continue here this line here. Masha'in came. In contrast, this is not so when you're speaking about something that is the domain of the heart. In other words, he spells it out. What is something that is not under your control? 
what is something we call the domain of the heart and therefore it's not subject to free will, is that you should actually despise Ra, which we clumsily translate as evil, but like we said in chapter 6, Ra just means anything that's not expressly for the intent of serving God. You cannot get yourself to, to despise it. You may like it, but you won't do it. But you can't get yourself to despise it. And then he says, it's interesting, I want to see if you guys are smart. I know you guys are smart. I want to see how smart you guys are. Okay. I'm learning, you know. I, I got to be, you know, kinder and gentler, but I don't know. I, by the way, I have a lot of nachas from my Talmudim. I feel like I'm very demanding, but I feel like people who learn with me achieve a lot. So I, I, I don't know. That's Okay, hopefully it's all done in a respectful fashion. Okay, I want, to, I want you guys to have an opportunity to show how smart you are. Um, he says here, it's not possible to get yourself to change things that are, that are completely the domain of the heart. And he says specifically to get yourself to actually dis- despise Ra, that which is not for the service of Hashem, whether completely or incompletely. You remember, you see those words here? Betachlesina, with complete hatred, or even incomplete hatred. What's that a callback to? What, that little phrase, those... Right. Right, very good. Very good. Okay. So that complete hatred is talking about the complete tzaddik who transformed. He transformed the bad guy. And then the incomplete hatred is talking about the incomplete tzaddik who he shut it down so it's not a threat anymore, but he didn't transform it. Right. So those two phrases are a callback to those two levels of tzaddik. But at any rate, the point is they're both tzaddik because someone who actually hates Ra is called a tzaddik. But normal people don't hate Ra, they just know not to do it. And that's what he's saying here. I can't make myself hate it, that's a tzaddik. I can get myself not to do it. Okay? All right. So we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. And we're not going to continue next week because I'm out of town, because I'm out of town. I, I booked a speaking engagement months ago, so there's nothing I can really do about it. Um, okay, good, good idea.